Other to Casablanca. Voices of struggle. Voices for change. Bringing you news and analysis of people's struggles throughout Southwest Asia and Northern Africa. Brought to you by Swana Collective. Swana Region Radio. Swana Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa that regularly broadcasts on Pacifica station KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. My name is David Lloyd, here with fellow collective member and co-host Soraya Zarouk. Swana Region Radio can be found on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. You can also follow our updates on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you in advance for sharing those podcasts widely. Thank you, David. And actually, in today's show, we are following up on a previous discussion in August of the situation of Afghan women in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover. And we'll get an update on the evolution of that situation. Our guest today is Mariam Hotaki, one of the participants in that previous roundtable, which you can still find as a podcast on Spotify at anchor.fm slash swana. For the past months, the people and country of Afghanistan have been subject to the probably inevitable chaos occasioned by the U.S. and NATO forces withdrawal from the nation they have occupied for 20 years, followed by great social instability and serious economic collapse. The Taliban is now ineffective, if perhaps temporary, control of the country and is seeking both to establish its legitimacy as a ruling power and to persuade Afghans that its regime will ensure peace and security in their nation and an end to the rampant corruption that the U.S. occupation abetted. Only time will tell whether the Taliban's leadership means what it says and has the capacity to control its own militants. From around the country, reports have come in of revenge killings, forced marriages, often of young girls to Taliban fighters, and the reintroduction of draconian social restrictions in keeping with the movement's fundamentalist Islamic beliefs. Despite assurances from Kabul, the clear reversion to the misogynist regime of the past that denied women the most basic of rights remains a pressing concern. The denial of the right to more than elementary education, the refusal of the Taliban to include women in the government, and the prohibition on women appearing in media or teaching in a university are some of the symptoms of the rollback of women's rights that Afghan women have long struggled for and often enjoyed in the past. Those rights, we must recall, were not the gift of the U.S. saving brown women from brown men. So for today's discussion on Afghanistan, we have the great honor of hosting Mariam Hotaki again here on KPFK Swana Region Radio. Mariam Hotaki is Afghan-American, born and raised in Kabul. She moved to the U.S. as a teenager. Her academic background is in international peace and security and social policy. And currently, Mariam works in big tech. Welcome to the show, Mariam. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Saria. Thanks for having me. Hi, Mariam. I wanted to start by asking you what you're hearing about the current state of what is happening on the ground. So what are your loved ones sharing? Could you give us an update of what's going on and how are people generally managing under the new regime? Thank you so much for asking. And I also wanted to thank you both for having this conversation, because while the general discourse about Afghanistan is starting to kind of die down, the situation is still as bad as it was and even getting worse. Getting to what's happening on the ground, um, 
currently a top priority humanitarian crisis. Um, there are reports that over 97% of the population by the end of the year would be living below poverty line. There are forced displacements of Hazaras throughout um, the country. Winter is approaching, very, very dire circumstances. It's been over a month that girls have not been able to go to school, over a month that women have been banned from going to uh, work. Taliban fighters are going and hunting down judges, the same judges, especially female judges, who convicted them. They're hunting down journalists. We have pictures and accounts of several journalists from local orgs like Itlaat Rose, who have been beaten and tortured by Taliban fighters. They're hunting down activists. They are shutting down free press. They are controlling practically every element of life. They're also hunting down former government officials. Um, so these are reports that we're seeing. Initially, a lot of it was citizen journalism, people posting on Twitter, people posting on Facebook and Instagram. However, now we're seeing reports from Human Rights Watch. We're seeing reports from the UN. We keep saying, if you don't believe Afghans on the ground, there are reports of all of this happening. If you don't believe the anecdotal things, like I, I remember in our last conversation, I was bringing up a lot of things that were happening in WhatsApp group chats with women sharing what they're going through and security issues and all of that. Um, so that's on the reporting side. And then um, just a general sense on an anecdotal side from my friends and family and what they're saying is lots of fear, lots of uncertainty. Some of my high school best friends, the thing that has stuck with me is they keep saying, we lost five, six years of school. And now that's the same fate that our children will have because girls have now been banned from secondary schools. They're afraid to leave their houses because a lot of these people have already lived through this regime. And those who haven't, the younger generation, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, anger, betrayal, and just being in this limbo of like winter is coming, people cannot afford to buy bread. How can we even start thinking about women's education? How can we even start thinking about institutions? I think a lot of these conversations need to happen simultaneous because there's obviously going to be a hierarchy of needs. If people don't have food, there's nothing else that they can kind of even begin to think about. Um, so that's kind of the general sense of what's happening. But I also wanted to give some context on the other side of it. People are not quietly accepting what the Taliban are imposing on them. There is a resistance happening throughout Afghanistan um, by very different means. So we have local organizations, local educators trying to continue educating their children, trying to campaign for education. We see social media campaigns. We see very, very brave women protesting nationwide for their rights, literally face to face with the Taliban. And we can kind of get into this later as well. But this, to your point, David, about um, how Afghan women were not, they're waiting uh, to be saved by the US, they have always fought for their rights. And they do have a voice. We don't need to pity them. We don't need to feel sorry for them. We just need to be allies to them and amplify that voice. That is indeed exactly where I wanted to go, because I was very interested in the longer history of women's struggles for rights that you were talking about when we last spoke about women in Afghanistan, that goes back at least to the 1921 constitution and certainly is not the gift of, of the US invasion. And I wondered if we could take up that conversation again and give you a chance to expand a little bit on that history. I think this is something that 
is very prominent even in very well-meaning discourse. Um, both the conversation of human rights and women's rights, oftentimes um, they are kind of framed as Western ideals. And that's definitely not the case when we look at the history of Central and South Asia or the broader Persian region, and we look at the philosophy and the poetry and all the things that came out of that region, that a lot of these ideas were so prominent back when they were not codified in the way that they are now. I do want to acknowledge that a lot of these things became codified after the Second World War with the creation of the UN and, you know, kind of putting those things into writing. But the concepts, the ideals, they've been around for a very long time in poetry and in discourse in our region. Um, I wanted to call out specifically two cases. Um, actually, one of uh, your listeners had reached out to us about a point I had made about one of the female poets in 10th century um, writing about women's rights. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk about her a little bit. Rabie Balkhi, 10th century poet from Balkh uh, in modern day Afghanistan. She is perceived as one of the first female Persian poets, um, and she was the epitome of defiance and resistance in every way. Um, and then we see other idols like Mahsati Ganjawi um, in 12th century writing about freedom there. There's this one poem that um, ke keeps coming back to me, especially given everything that's happening in Afghanistan. And also for context, this region is a very poetic region. So oftentimes discourse happens in poetry. And there's this one poem uh, where it's basically uh, saying that the one whose hair is kind of like a chain cannot be chained at home. And this is a 12th century uh, Persian poet. So kind of wanted to give that broader like way back a historical context. Um, but in terms of the modern Afghan history, as you brought up in, in the 1920s, uh, King Amanullah Khan had a lot of reforms and um, Queen Suraya. Um, and then later on in the constitution, it became more codified in the 1964 constitution uh, for the equality of men and women. Um, and that kind of continued in the 2004 constitution, which was kind of based on the previous constitution as well. But throughout history, we've had women kind of strive to be included in political discourse and social discourse. Um, in the 60s, there were a lot of female musicians who were kind of like defying a lot of social norms. Um, in 1946, we had Queen Homaira, uh, who was really pushing for women's inclusion and participation in social discourse. So just kind of like, uh, obviously, this is not a complete historical um, context on the topic, but wanted to give specific examples of prominent Afghan women in the past um, defending um, their rights and speaking up for their rights and being aware of their rights. It wasn't something that was gifted to them. And I also want to bring up the last 20 years because there is historical con context and there's precedence, but uh, at the same time, we see a lot of these pictures of women in the 60s and skirts and things like that. Like that was the epitome of um, a female freedom in Afghanistan, but I want to also add the context of the last 20 years. I think oftentimes when I have conversations with friends, um, very well-meaning friends in Europe or in the U.S., they don't really know what has changed in Afghanistan, the ones who are not super involved in politics. They just think, okay, there was one regime and now there's another one. What has changed? So I want to also give some examples of the things that women themselves have done over the last 20 years. There was this one article in particular that I wanted to speak about. It was written by um, Cheryl Bernard, um, who also happens to be uh, Mr. Khalilzad's wife. Um, and it, it was basically along the lines of uh, Afghan women need to start saving themselves and we cannot save them and all of that. And I just wanted to kind of 
um, directly refer to that and also that that narrative that Afghan women have been fighting for their rights over the last 20 years. The head of our um, Human Rights Commission was a woman, Shahrzad Akbar. Afghan women like Pashtana Durani are fighting for education, a 23-year-old fighting for education in, in Kandahar and in, in Helmand and across Afghanistan. We have female activists protests like this is my street too um, against um, street harassment and female presenters, female journalists, lecturers, women were in all walks of life and women were present and advocating for their rights in every element. They had startups, they had their own cafes, they had their own businesses. All of this stuff was happening and none of it was necessarily like thanks to the US. Um, I, I just want to call out that there's the historical context and that women to this day, even right now, it's not uh, this discourse that we need to go save Afghan women. Again, oftentimes very well-meaning, Afghan women do not need saving. We just need uh, that if there is political interference um, or if there's diplomatic interference, that it's thoughtful. Like this morning, right before the show, I was reading an article about the U.S. talks with Pakistan on using their air force for intel in Afghanistan. And, and it's this sense that the U.S. kind of wants to be a selective hegemon in a way where you have hegemony when you want it. However, when the responsibility and the consequences come in, you kind of take a step back and that has a lot of responsibility uh, tied to it. Um, that was wonderful. And thank you for sort of pointing out the selective history that the U.S. is, you know, putting out there and has needed to sort of, you know, further its own interests. So I love that you're pointing out the way that Afghan women have always been fighting for themselves, and especially that you're reaching to sort of poetry and art and music as a source of history and context as well. Um, so to sort of connect uh, and to keep going this thread that we're talking about, can you talk a little bit about the Afghan women's protests that have been happening in Kabul and elsewhere recently? What's happening? What are their demands? And how is the Taliban responding to them? This is something that has not got as much coverage as um, we had hoped. Um, these women are the epitome of courage. I've just been in awe of them. Um, just being outside Afghanistan, there were definitely moments for the diaspora where we were losing hope. But seeing the, the courage that th these women showed, that was really inspiring. So there were protests, really big protests across Afghanistan initially that were shut down by the Taliban. Um, there, there, there were women who were beaten, uh, women who were pushed, women who were lashed publicly. And this was in, in the cities where um, there were reporters around, where there were foreign reporters around, and that always kind of changes how Taliban behave, and we can kind of get into that with their whole legitimacy conversation. But there are lots of footage of them treating these women uh, really badly on the protests, but also afterwards, sort of hunting them down, looking at photos, we were concerned because a lot of photos were circulating off the protests. Um, and we were worried about how they would hunt down these women and go after them. So there were protests, not just in Kabul, but across Afghanistan, um, in provinces like Balkh, Herat, uh, we had some, pro uh, some protests in Kandahar. Um, and, and this is where we also kind of want to look into this myth that the thing that women are fighting for is only for women in cities. Um, and that's also a false narrative. And it's, it's a binary narrative. Again, going back to the hierarchy of needs, a lot of women in uh, remote areas may not have had the same opportunities in the last 20 years as their counterparts in the cities. However, it does not mean that they wouldn't want those things. Uh, going back to the protests, there's, there, there have also been 
a lot of social media campaigns with um, pen names because a lot of female activists are worried about their safety. So we're seeing women's faces and women's names disappearing. Um, which is very sad, but at the same time, it, it's great to see that they're coming together and that there are these campaigns happening. Um, initially, there were several rounds of campaigns and the things that they were asking for, very basic, education, work, school. This one poster really stayed with me from one of the recent protests was, it basically said food, work, school, political participation, and that, that's what we all basically want. That's what uh, equality is all about. And uh, there were very, very um, brave women um, who were not afraid of going up and standing in front of the Taliban. These were women who have either lived through the Taliban before or who had never lived under the Taliban because they were like 19 years old or 18 years old. And they were face to face with Taliban fighters holding guns. And I'm sure that you all have seen photos circulating, holding guns to their faces. Um, and um, these women are symbols of just resistance and defiance. Um, and we need to support them in every way that we can. Um, the protests are still going on, uh, but the scale is much smaller. There was one protest a couple of days ago, I believe, um, and uh, we were seeing footages from that protest where reporters, foreign reporters, foreign white male reporters were being beaten and attacked by Taliban. So I, I shared that level of detail because if a foreign white male reporter is being treated that way by Taliban when there are cameras, how are we, how, how are they treating Afghan women? And I also want to kind of call out the fact that this is in cities, in cities where people have um, phones, they have smartphones, they can record things. Uh, we're not getting news from provinces. The news that we're getting from provinces is very kind of scattered. So we're hearing of protests, we're seeing little signs, but we don't know what happens to these women after. And I think that's the, the very concerning part. There is a resistance, but because there is no sort of like, tactical support and there's also not um, even not even like symbolic support uh, from the international community they're they're completely alone by symbolic support I also mean things like for instance UN women um, appointing a man as as their Afghanistan representative or a lot of international organizations sending all male panels so Afghan women are in this fight against terrorism against extremism on their own but they're showing a lot of courage my worries about this, and um, this is something a lot of us share in, in um, the Afghan community, is what will happen to them. Because although evacuations are happening, this irresponsible uh, withdrawal process has caused, it's led an entire nation on the verge of, of a break. Obviously, it's not the only factor, but a big factor in like the the way events spiraled. And these women are now in a situation where they're protesting, they're showing a lot of courage, but they also have no money, no food, and the Taliban are hunting them down. So that's kind of the general sense of what's going on. I think it's really important that you stress the relationship between what gets abstracted as rights and the fundamental economic issues of, of food and employment and the ability to work. To, to go on to talk a little bit more about what you've been saying, because in the beginning, when the withdrawal was really underway, 
there were reports that you know the the repression of women particularly in the cities was just the work of small elements of the taliban or maverick you know members of the the forces on the street and so forth but clearly this is no longer that kind of haphazard or sporadic outburst by particular taliban members but it's emerging as a full-scale Taliban policy. Is that correct, you think? Or, or are we still dealing with a somewhat fragmented organization here? You're absolutely right in pointing out that initially it was a matter of kind of blaming uh, whatever was happening on specific Taliban fighters and even promising justice, promising that they would be taken to Taliban-style courts um, and that they would they would be held accountable and that it was not um, the systematic um, Taliban policies. I do want to call out that there are two things. There is uh, what the Taliban are saying and then what the Taliban are doing. So the Taliban have a really... Uh, skilled, I would say, um, in a very disturbing way, skilled spokespeople like Zabiullah Mujahid, who say exactly what Western audiences would like to hear, uh, because the Taliban have an end goal, uh, despite all their uh, sort of hatred towards um, the West or the U.S. occupation, they they want legitimacy. They want to be recognized internationally. So they want to say things that would be uh, looked um, looked up upon. For instance, even the ban on girls' education, they're not calling it a ban. They're saying that their boys are going to school, but girls will return when we kind of sort some things out. So they're very careful in their discourse and in their language and in the way they present themselves with international audiences. I'm sure that uh, there are fragmentations within the Taliban ranks because this is a group that has um, kind of gained power through terrorism, through suicide attacks. So they don't know governance. They don't know how a country works. They don't know how a system should work. And hence the the, uh, the collapse that's happening so fast and spiraling. So there are um, there is this sense that they, they cannot control their fighters. Um, and a lot of their fighters, the way they've been indoctrinated, I've been seeing some videos and some comments from them saying jihad was very easy and now we have to figure out this thing and this whole governance thing and I'm losing sleep over it or some of them saying um, that they're sad they're losing the opportunity to be uh, shaheeds or to be martyrs it's it's very very disturbing the level of uh, indoctrination but that's another conversation Uh, so I, I I want to kind of emphasize that there is fragmentation however in general this is Taliban policy I do not think there's such thing as moderate Taliban. I do not think there's such thing as changed Taliban. Uh, Taliban's ideology is based on extremism and on fundamentalism. And there's no compromise when you're um, talking about the, um, extremism. There's no middle ground because your whole ideology, your whole brand is extremism. Um, and just to sort of affirm uh, that they have been so committed to who they are, to their brand. Recently, they had um, uh, a session in Kabul's Intercontinental Hotel where they paid tribute to suicide attackers' families. Um, this is while Hazars are, are being displaced. Or this is while like families are mourning the loss of their loved ones. Um, so they are trying to kind of play this double game with um, some of their leaders going into Doha or talking to international partners, and they keep seeking legitimacy. They keep seeking recognition, but they're giving nothing. They're giving nothing in return. They're not removing sanctioned individuals from their caretaker cabinet. 
this is kind of the consequence of negotiating with terrorists, right? Because there's no middle ground. They will not meet you halfway because their ideology is absolute and you keep having to give more and more. And this is where like the international community is kind of dealing with how do we solve the humanitarian crisis without necessarily recognizing this government. Um, and, and it's very tricky, very tricky dynamics because they're taking a, ho- a nation hostage um, and they're saying one thing, but their policies are hardline. Uh, it is a ban on girls' education. And as for the ban on women's work, that's um, they're not even kind of playing around with the language there. Um, it is an absolute ban. So what they're saying and what they're doing do not align. And um, despite the fragmentation, their ideologies remain the same. And as part of that international audience, what can our listeners do to help Afghan women and Afghan men? Um, Thank you for that question, Soraya. Um, I I think the most important thing is to not forget Afghanistan. I think a lot of things are, um, it's kind of like hot topic news cycle for a while. We all think about it. We all care about it. And I know there are lots of things going on in, in the world. However, something of this scale the poverty of this scale, the, everything that has happened over the last two months, I think we, we just need to keep talking about it. Do not forget Afghanistan. Keep talking about Afghanistan. Amplify local voices. Amplify local stories. Be an ally. And I also want to call out um, to your and David's earlier point, um, support programs like this. Support Swana Region Radio. Uh, donate if you can. Um, it's, it's very, very important that we support these kind of conversations, this kind of discourse that's not happening in a lot of other mainstream um, channels. So uh, I think if you go to kpfk.org, you can donate and you can kind of also add a call out about this program, Swana Region Radio in particular, so we can continue having these kind of conversations. Thank you so much, Mariam. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for our show now. Our guest today has been Mariam Hotaki. Mariam Hotaki is Afghan-American, born and raised in Kabul. She moved to the U.S. as a teenager, and her academic background is in international peace and security and social policy. And please continue to listen to our podcasts on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Public Radio, and Breaker. This is Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa that regularly broadcasts here on Pacifica Station KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And we'd like to thank the Swana Collective for helping us do this show, especially Antina Antaram for production assistance. Thanks always to Kiana Williams on the board. Please continue to listen out for more podcasts and check our coverage of this and other important issues in the Swana region. Thank you for listening and thank you for your donations. Mm-hmm.